If you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11. Well, Lazarus is finally going to come out of the tomb. Amen. Amen. Been waiting for this, yes? And let's just be reminded about the significance of this. Folks, the resurrection is our hope. That's where our hope is grounded, no less than the Apostle Paul said that if Christ is not risen, then neither will we be risen. And if Christ is not risen, and if we will not be risen, if we will not be raised, then we are to be pitied above all people. Paul's prescription was this. If there is no resurrection, then let's drown our sorrows and our hopelessness in intoxicants and in physical pleasures and then die. Don't you love the realism of the Apostle Paul? He was not interested in an esoteric religion of self-help or spiritual techniques that did not have the promise of a crucified and risen Christ, thus guaranteeing the removal of our sin and our future resurrection. Without that, Paul was not interested and neither should you be. We do not come here to master techniques. We come here to hear once again the gospel of our hope. And to be reminded of what is true. That one day all that is wrong with this world will be made right. And death will be destroyed. If that's not true, then sleep in on Sundays. (laughs) Well, how's that? None of that was in the notes. All right. John chapter 11. I want to read for you this morning verses 38 through 44. Verses 38 through 44. And if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as we read this portion of God's Word, being reminded that it is His inspired and holy, powerful, living, unerring, life-giving Word. And so let's give it our full attention. John 11, beginning in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, once again we ask that you would remind us of your good truth. Ground us once again in the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for sinners like us. Grant faith to the unbeliever today, Lord, and hope to all of those who look to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is the seventh of Jesus' seven miraculous signs that John the Apostle uh, highlights here. You'll remember that 
John specifies seven of Jesus' miracles. He highlights seven of Jesus' miracles, and he calls them signs because that is how they function. They point beyond themselves to something even greater, namely Jesus himself. The point is never the sign. The point is never the miracle. The point is always Jesus. And John, in those seven signs that he shines a spotlight on, is showing us something different, something helpful in our own understanding of the deity of Jesus Christ. And here, of course, his seventh sign, publicly witnessed by who knows how many are gathered there, um, is his most remarkable sign uh, of all. And all along, throughout this entire scene in chapter 11, there's all of this, uh, all of this pathos, this deeply felt experience. You have, you have the death of Lazarus, first of all, which has been the occasion of great dismay and deep grief on the part of his sisters, Mary and Martha, on the part of his friends, on the part of Jesus, who was one of his close friends. Um, you have along with the, those folks uh, the loud mourning of the people who have come to, to participate in this ceremonial, loud cries of, of mourning there all around the home and then later at the tomb. And, and, and to add to that, you have the continued um, lack of faith, struggling faith, um, lack of understanding about Jesus, who, who, who Jesus really is. All of that kind of gets mixed together, blended together, and then it collides headlong here with the tomb of Lazarus. And once again, Jesus proves to be no stoic. He's not an absentee deity when it comes to death in the grave. His anger is kindled against all that has harmed his people, all that has vandalized his human creatures, those who bear his image. And there at the tomb of Lazarus, the resurrection and the life the judge of all the earth stands ready to pronounce sentence against death itself. So, Jesus is brought to the tomb by the friends of Lazarus. Now, the tomb was a cave, we're told here, which was fairly typical in that region, and you still find them there, um, particularly owned by people of means. They would sometimes rent out or lease out space for people who could not afford their own tomb. And what it was was really a cave carved into the side of a rock or a cliff. And before the opening was placed this large circular stone. You've seen the pictures, right? And it's placed within a rut. And, and with a great deal of effort, you can move that stone back and forth either to open or close the tomb. And this is where the body of Lazarus had been laid to rest, in one of those cave tombs. And the procedure for preparing the body of Lazarus was like this. The body would be placed upon a a stone slab within the tomb where it would be wrapped uh, with layers of linen and spices. The body would be then uh, placed within a cut-out recess within the wall of the cave. After a year or so, when there was nothing left except bones, the family would go again, once again, to the tomb, and they would gather the bones of their loved one, place them in a limestone box called an ossuary, where the family name would be engraved, and that would remain within the tomb. Notice in verse 38 that Jesus is once again referred to as being deeply moved. Now, this is the same word we saw earlier, the word we looked at last week, if you were with us. 
which is best translated as angry or indifferent, or I'm sorry, indignant, the opposite of indifference. Angry or indignant. It was a, use, it was a word used often by Greeks to, to describe someone who was so angry, so indignant, that they would make a physical sound. You know, kind of this... <clears throat> you know, when, when there's other people around and they're not quite aware that you're mad and they need to know that you're mad. You let them know audibly, right? And, and that same word was applied to war horses dressed out for battle who would snort loudly as they were ready for war. That's the word that's used to describe Jesus here. The resurrection and the life. The light of the world. The water of life. The bread of life. Stands before the place of death with an unalloyed, unmixed, holy indignation. A wicked vandal has marred his beloved image bearer. Aren't you comforted by the fact that Jesus is angered over what harms you? They say that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference, right? Jesus is anything but indifferent when it comes to what's good for you. And he hates, he is angered over anything that harms you. Now, if you're a parent, you know that feeling. You hate anything. You resist anything. You stand against anything that, is, that you possibly can that will harm your beloved child. And if you and I, as sinners, can do that, how much greater is Jesus' holy indignation against what hurts us? That's the mark of divine, pure, Holy love. Well, standing before the tomb, Jesus gives a command which would have shocked those who heard it. He says, roll away the stone. Now, they're not there to prepare the body. That work has been done. Why is he rolling away the stone? He got there too late. He can't heal him. What's he doing? Notice the frankness of Martha in verse 39. Jesus, we know how this works. There's going to be an odor. He's been dead and in a tomb for four days. See, these people were no strangers to death. In that time, people often died at home in the presence of family members. Their bodies were prepared for burial by family members. This is just the way it was done. They didn't have the luxury to outsource death the way we do. So Martha's statement is a very important detail here. Having been in the tomb for four days, the body of Lazarus had already begun to decompose. This is John reminding us that Lazarus is truly dead. And because he's truly dead, his greatest need is not to be refreshed. His greatest need is resurrection. And by the way, this is a picture of humanity in sin. More on that in just a moment. Now look again at verse 40. Do you see how... Jesus responds to Martha. Remember, Martha's warning him, it's going to smell bad if you roll that stone away. Martha still doesn't know what Jesus is going to do or even what he can do. And you see what he says in response? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And of course, this is always what it's been about for Jesus, the glory of God. 
Every step Jesus took, every movement he make, every, made, every word that he spoke was ultimately for the glory of God. We ourselves, as followers of Jesus, are told to do everything for what? For the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or sleep or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And here Jesus is reminding them, reminding Martha specifically, of what he had taught her so many times. Haven't I told you? Don't you remember what I said? That if you'll believe, you will see the glory of God. Do you see the the significance of the order of things in Jesus' economy here? Because it runs counter to everything that the world says about what is required in order to have faith in something. For the world, seeing is believing. But God consistently upends this this tenant of human wisdom, does he not? Certainly there are places for evidence which can be seen and measured. Indeed, the Bible is filled with historical details, names, places, dates, events, uh, buildings, eyewitness testimony, all to bolster its claims. That entire region is filled with archaeologists doing their work, and each day, it seems, they dig up something else that's witnessed to by the Bible. So the Bible is not anti-evidence. The Bible is pro-evidence. But the necessity of faith is never undermined. So what does Jesus say? Martha, believe, and then you'll see. Believe, and then you'll see. Do you see how revolutionary that is? In the 11th century, Anselm, uh, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said, I do not seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. The writer of Hebrews tells us, what about faith? That it is the confidence of what we can't see yet. It's being sure of what we haven't seen yet with our own eyes. Now, the Bible never means to apply that principle to everything. Okay, if you contract with someone to build something in your home or to build a home, let's say, and there is a contract and you say, no, I don't sign contracts, I just believe, we'd say, that's kind of stupid. So the the Bible is not giving us here a principle that's applied to every single interaction we ever have. It is applied to God. It is applied to His promises. Jesus expects His people to believe His Word, to have faith in Him. God's allowed to expect that. And as we will see in the next section, next week, Lord willing, the people that day who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus can be divided into two groups. On the one hand, you had people who saw it and they knew what it was a sign of the deity of Jesus, a sign that this was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you had another group of people who saw the same miracle, the resurrection of a dead man whose decomposing body had already begun to stink. And he walks out of that tomb. They see the same thing. And we're told in verse 46 that they went immediately to the authorities to alert them about Jesus' presence. the very ones planning to kill him, were alerted by people who just saw him raise a dead man. You see, unbelief is a choice. 
How can you listen to Bach or smell a rose or eat a strawberry and come away with the notion that ultimately all of those things are the result of a chance collision of dust and gases? You see, people do not believe because they find it preferable not to believe. To deny what Calvin referred to as the sensus divinitatis. That's a a Latin term that, that Calvin coined to refer to what Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes about in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, wherein Paul says that every person, believer and unbeliever, people who have access to the Bible and people who don't have access to the Bible, they are able to look at creation and know that God is and know that he is good and know that he is powerful just by observing what he's made. In chapter 2, he goes further and says not only that, but even people who don't have the law of God have his presence engraved in their conscience. They know, they know there is a God who is holy because God's written it on their conscience. Calvin looks at that and he calls it the sense of the, 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 sense of the divine. And the point I'm making here is that to deny that, to deny the sense of the divine that is engraved on our conscience, takes far more what I would call blind faith than it does to follow that sense to its most obvious conclusion. What's the old saying? I simply don't have enough faith to be an unbeliever. It's true. I want you to notice one more thing. Do you see how the sign of the raising of Lazarus is accompanied by the word, by instruction? Jesus has been instructing this entire time. Even when he prays, right? Prays out loud and he says, God, I'm praying this way so that these people will hear me. By the way, you don't pray that way, okay? I pray out loud, but don't make your prayer a Bible study lesson for the ignorant people around you. I mean, we've been in those kinds of prayers, right? And Lord, I pray for John, who, you know how messed up he is, and I just hope he hears these words, and yada, yada, yada. Listen, Jesus prays out loud because he still, they, they still need instructing. They're still in their ignorance. They still don't know. They still don't see. They're still not hearing him. So Jesus is, 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 is giving the word, he's instructing, he's speaking all the way through this. We follow this pattern, this pattern of, of the sign always being accompanied by the word. And by the way, that's the pattern in all four Gospels. Every time Jesus works a miracle, there's some form of proclamation. There's some form of instruction. The word is present when Jesus performs a miracle. We follow this pattern in the church when the signs that are given to us by the Lord, which are baptism in the Lord's Supper, are always accompanied by instruction from the Word of God. Always. So the people do as Jesus commands. They take away the stone from the entry into Lazarus' tomb. Jesus turns his gaze heavenward. He prays. He prays so that the people will hear them because he's still instructing. And then verse 43... When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now we've talked a number of times before when we have considered the miracles of Jesus about how they are always described with a great economy of words. That is, there's never any verbal, uh, uh, you know, literary flair to describe the miracles of Jesus. And there doesn't seem to be any flair as as he performs them. You know, it's not like 
lights are bursting everywhere and laser beams are coming out of his eyes, anything like that. Just says it and it happens and that's the event and that's the description. And I'm convinced that this is done in part because Jesus was rather modest in the public display of power because he never wanted our faith to rest ultimately in his miracles, but in him, in his word. That said, notice the one detail that John does provide. In a loud voice, he tells us. It's it's the word kraugadzo. You can use that later at lunch. If you, if you get mad and you start yelling, just say, no, it's Kraugadzo. It's what Jesus did. It's used six times by John. Uh, one in reference to the reaction of the crowds on Palm Sunday as they cried out with a loud voice, Hosanna. Four times it's used for the cries of those that called for Jesus' crucifixion. The point is that the tomb of his friend Jesus did not whisper, nor did he plead, this is the shout of sovereign authority. Jesus was no pagan mystic. He wasn't a magician muttering incantations under his breath. He wasn't looking at entrails or rolling the bones. He was the Lord of life. Lazarus was raised not by magic, but by the power of God. Not by an incantation, but by the shout of the Lord's own authority. Jesus does not whisper his judgment upon death. He shouts it loud so that everyone will hear. Of this text, D.A. Carson writes this. I just had to include this because I like it. He writes, It is not John's point... But it has often been remarked that the authority of Jesus is so great that had he not specified Lazarus by name, all the tombs would have given up their dead that day. You don't want Jesus walking into a cemetery and saying, come out. Or maybe you do. And then in verse 44, again with a With very little flair, John tells us that the man who had been dead, Lazarus, comes forth alive from the tomb. There he is, wrapped still in the linen that bound his body together. And Jesus calls for him to be unbound and released. What a great little metaphor for what he speaks over our lives when he saves us. That outside of Christ, we are bound up. We can't even move. Dead in sin as we are, decaying. But when He saves us, He raises us, sets us free, unbinds us. And that's what those assembled there at the tomb that day did. I'm sure Mary and Martha were in the front of the line to get those things off of Him. And that's how Jesus' most extraordinary miracle outside of his own resurrection is described by John. Now keep in mind that Lazarus is still going to face death one day. This is not the final resurrection at the age to come. He has not yet been raised in that glorified way, incorruptible. That is yet to come. 
And so he's going to have to be on his deathbed again at some point. And though we're not told this, given what we know about the family and about the circumstances, about the investment that Jesus made in them, I I can only imagine that Lazarus was a deep man of faith, particularly after being raised from the dead. And I can imagine that his experience on his deathbed the second time around would have been wholly different from the first time. Speaking to those grieving his second passage into death, I'm sure he would have been the one comforting them. Oh, if you had seen what I've already seen. Wipe away every tear. Do not cry for me. He knew what Paul knew, and Paul knew it before Paul knew it without dying. That to remain here is good for you, but to depart and be with Christ is better by far. Lazarus knew it. And that made all the difference. And these words are given to us so that it might make all the difference to us. So that on our deathbed, we too will be the ones saying, Dry your tears, beloved. I'm going home. Don't grieve for me. You can't even imagine what I'm about to see. And you see, it's the resurrection of Jesus that removes those words from the realm of sentimental and places them firmly upon the ground of fact. Well, what do we learn? few things to learn specifically from the raising of Lazarus. First of all, the resurrection of Lazarus teaches us a lot about Jesus. Well, you would assume that, I would hope. Teaches us about his everlasting power, his deity. That was the point of the sign to begin with. So that we would see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. He's not just someone who has a special relationship with God. He is God in the flesh with all of the authority over life and death within his own lips. Jesus is nothing like the old pagan myths of the godlike man or the man-like God. The incarnation of God in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ is unlike anything known in the pagan world. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, accompanied by that incredible, unspeakable miracle, We see that in the person of Jesus, God has come near to his people. He's come near to us with his compassion. He's come near to us with his holiness. He has come near to us in his love. And oh, how he loves us. What do we learn about Jesus in the raising of Lazarus? Well, among other things, we learn that maybe the very first truth we learn as little bitty children in Sunday school, Jesus loves me, this I know. And he does. How precious is your life to him? How much value do you have, you for whom he gave up his life? How much love? How deep, how deep the love of Jesus is for you? We learn also a lot of things about the body from the raising of Lazarus. Because it reminds us, resurrection in general reminds us of the importance of the fact that we are, by God's design, an embodied people. And this is good. Pagan spirituality has historically, almost always, without exception, held that the physical body was either unimportant 
or an outright impediment to your real self that needed to be cast off as soon as possible or transcended. Our bodies matter so much, though, that they will be raised up in the last day. The Christian doesn't say, I can't wait to be a ghost or a disembodied spirit. The Christian hope is grounded in the fact that one day these corrupted, corruptible bodies will be raised up immortal. Donald MacLeod, the great Scottish theologian, wrote this, quote, Ancient religions and philosophers despised the body, but in Christianity it has always been, it has always had a very honorable role. It was made, that is the body, was made directly by God himself. He formed it and fashioned it lovingly. It was also taken by the Son of God into his own person in the glory of the Incarnation when the Word became flesh. And that act brought deity and materiality into the closest imaginable union. The same emphasis is made by the resurrection. It reminds us once again that the body is of central, is of central concern to God's purpose of redemption. God's salvation purpose, his goal in redemption, has always been for us a fully embodied salvation. These are just some of the reasons why the Bible places such a high value upon the ethics of the human body. There was a day when it was widely recognized by people that our bodies actually teach us a lot about who we are. And they were right. Our bodies matter. But now we live in an age where people know better, apparently, and have come to believe that our bodies actually don't teach us who we are. We actually stand in judgment over our bodies. And if my body tells me something I don't like, then I can alter it or change it or do away with it. This is not right, though. Our bodies matter. Our bodies tell us, for instance, whether we are male or female, which then tells us so much about how we are to live our lives our earthly purpose, the various ways in which we are to flourish in this fallen world, the various ways in which we can bless one another. Our bodies speak to us about this. So that when we say that our gender is merely a social construct that can be changed depending on how we feel about ourselves, what we, what we do in that moment is that we, we denigrate, we, we insult our bodies as nothing more than something either to be ignored Or even worse, to be surgically changed to suit a misguided desire. The importance of the body is why we insist that the lives of our neighbors should be treated with dignity from the moment they're conceived in the womb until the day that they die. And think about the specific boundaries that God has placed around sexual intimacy. Physical intimacy, sexual intimacy is a gift that God has given to husband and wife within the covenant bonds of marriage with an eye towards making other little humans. Take sexual intimacy out of that purpose, out of that context, and it becomes something that damages us. Those God-given boundaries are, are given that we might honor God with our bodies, that we might bless rather than harm others, that we might be healthy and flourish. Our bodies are to be treated in a holy manner. What does Paul write in in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1? Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That's why the Bible tells us to 
to flee from sins that are against the body. It's why the Bible especially condemns sins which are against the body. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. And just pause there for a second because in case anybody is confused, sexual immorality is any expression of sexual intimacy, any use of sexual intimacy that is outside the bonds of marriage between a husband and a wife. It's not okay if you're pretty sure you're going to get married to go ahead and indulge in this before marriage. It's not okay. Paul goes on, he says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, the ancient pagan did not have a category for this, of sinning against the body. How can you sin against the body when the body is something we're supposed to overcome, transcend, get beyond? One of the ways that the Corinthian church was so confused is that they had taken up some of these Gnostic ideas about the the lack of importance of the body. And they had this saying that they traded around in the church in order to excuse their sexual sin. They would say, well, the stomach's made for food, dot, dot, dot. Meaning, these other parts of the body are made for that, so just do it. Just do it. It's just a bodily function. And because it's just a bodily function, it's really not that important. Because it's just the body. The biblical worldview, Christianity, flips that script and says, no, that makes it especially problematic that it's against the body. It makes it especially grievous because it's against the body. Why? Well, Paul goes on. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body that Jesus is returning in part to raise us up to eternal life an embodied life in a new creation that is massively significant about the importance and the value of your body well what do we learn also about sin and salvation. I would say that the raising of Lazarus has a great deal to do with sin and salvation because in the raising of Lazarus, we are invited to ponder the power of the gospel and the miracle of God's saving work. The body of Lazarus was decaying already in a tomb and that is a worthy picture of our spiritual condition outside of Christ. Our sin does not merely hamper us. Our sin does not merely interfere with us. Rather, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, outside of Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Not troubled by, not hampered by, we are dead. And what does a dead person do to help himself or herself? Nothing. The human heart has a conspicuous and highly alarming attraction to sin. Ian Fleming, the author of the James Bond novels, said that apart from the seven deadly sins, life would be drab. He said, without sin, life would be like Rembrandt or Van Gogh trying to paint without the primary colors. That's how much we love sin. Or think of the great characters in literature. The best characters are always the transgressors, the bad guys, the evil ones. It's pretty much universally accepted 
that the best character in John Milton's Paradise Lost is Satan. He gets all the best lines. There is something about sin, there's something about evil that holds a fascination for us. And why? Because sin goes really deep. One of the most troubling books I've ever read is entitled Ordinary Men. It's the account of a German police battalion in the early years of the Second World War. These were not soldiers, they were not members of the SS, but some 500 ordinary men who followed an order. They were given specifically by their commander an out. If they had a problem in their conscience, they could opt out of this assignment. Of the 500, one, perhaps two, opted out. And the order was this, is that they would exterminate all of the Jews in a particular region of Poland. And again, this was not the SS, this was not the army. These were policemen, ordinary men. And in less than two years, they were responsible for the deaths of some 83,000 Jews. These were not doctrinaire Nazis, but men who, placed in a particular set of circumstances, found themselves capable of doing massive evil. The point is that even the most ordinary people are capable of far greater wickedness than they would ever dare to dream. And why? Because sin is far worse than we can imagine. And the proof is in the presence of death. Death stands as the daily announcement of just how bad sin is. That we have cemeteries to drive by is as though God is placarding for us visibly. Need I remind you of how bad sin is? Look over here. The grave testifies to the fact that sin is death. It ruins the soul and it turns people like us into monsters. Our lusts, which reduce our neighbors to objects of our pleasure, our dreams of revenge against those that have hurt us, our pride and our addictive preference to our own good over the good of others, our habitual daily indifference towards God, all of it points to the evil that lurks within the hearts of even the best of us. One of the reasons we pray a prayer of corporate confession of sin every Lord's Day is because we are so deliberately, selectively forgetful. We are selective in our memory to the extent that we tend to deliberately select out of our memory the sins that we're guilty of, while meticulously remembering the sins that everybody else is guilty of. The other reason we confess our sins together each Lord's Day is because without it we'll start to forget how good the gospel is. Because when we forget how bad sin is, we will inevitably forget how good the gospel is. If sin is just something that hampers me, if sin is just not me living out my highest ideals, then what is the gospel? At best, it's a self-help program. But when I know I'm dead in my sins and trespasses, 
when I know that the potential for wickedness is great within me, then the gospel becomes this big, mighty, bright light of life-giving salvation from the crucified and risen Christ. Years ago, I read an article by a theologian in which he writes rather tongue-in-cheek about our efforts to, to minimize and diminish the importance of sin. And the title of the article was, God, have mercy on me, a miscalculator. Such a view of sin will inevitably reduce the gospel in our minds. But the gospel is not a hand up. The gospel is not a divine assist. The gospel is the announcement that in the dying and rising of Jesus, he has brought us from death to life. Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show forth the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying there that by saving us, Christ has brought us from death to life. And not just that, but, but he has already now seated us with Christ. What does he mean by that? Because we're still here, after all. He means to tell us some of the very things that Jesus taught us. When Jesus said things like this, Whosoever believes in me will have everlasting life. He who believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live. And we who are here still in this fallen world, the promises of God are so sure and his salvation is so great that Paul can, can write of the resurrection and he can write of our being seated with Christ as present realities, so sure are they to come to pass. Well, finally, we learn about death, death, life, and hope. The side of heaven, we live in the tension between death and life. We know that Jesus has risen and his resurrection is the guarantee of our own resurrection one day, and yet we live each day in the valley of the shadow of death. And while we must not live in fear of death, neither are we to, to be glib in the face of such an awful, terrible, evil enemy. One commentator writes this, quote, The story of Lazarus draws us directly into the pathos so deeply rooted in our hearts. His grave is a reminder that every grave we have visited and a parable of the grave we must all visit, our own. So when we think about death, when we witness the suffering of those with terminal illness, when we attend a funeral, we must be strengthened by the difference that Jesus has made. Death, for all of its ugliness and malice, cannot overcome the one who is the resurrection and the life. And it comes down to this, Christian. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in Christ, the life of the believer is no longer terminated by death? That death, the unwelcome intruder, has itself been sentenced to death by the life-giving Christ? And what difference will believing that make 
when calamity comes to your doorstep. Lord willing, if I'm able to finish preaching through John, we're going to notice something really special about his account, his account of the resurrection of Jesus in the days afterwards. This gospel, the gospel of John, which includes these words in the prologue, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, this same gospel account ends with what I would call the most physical of the resurrection accounts. That when he raised himself up from the dead, Jesus did not exist among us as some ghostly apparition. That for the next 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus lived among and ate with and taught and was seen by thousands. In fact, by the time that the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians years later, he appeals to his readers to consider the evidence that hundreds of people who had seen and been with the resurrected Christ were still alive and available to talk to. And it is in Jesus' rising, a resurrection prefigured in the resurrection of Lazarus, that holds our hope. We do not fear, Christian, because whatever else happens today, you'll either be here or you'll be home. And the same is true for tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes. But here's the good news. You'll either be here or you'll be home. In Christ, those are your two options. There's not a third one. That's really good news. What can the world do to people whose outlook outlook on life is so victorious, so profoundly hopeful, that our attitude towards life is, well, whatever happens, the bottom line is, I'm either going to be here, which hopefully is going to be good for you, or I'm going to be home. So whatever the world can do, the world can do its, its best. Calamity can come. I can be confused and dismayed by whatever else happens. What I do know is that bottom line is I'm either going to be here or I'm going to be home. Let's remember the words of the Apostle Paul. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And then will come the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I love what we sang earlier in this service. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The King of glory passes on his way. Alleluia. Alleluia. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, Lord, cause your word to not depart from us. Lord, cause hope to rise up within our hearts. Let not the best of all good news leave us unchanged. Grant faith to the unbeliever today, Lord. 
Give them the grace to look to you, to look to Jesus and believe. And Father, for all of us, do not let us leave this place without the life of hope coursing through our veins, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.